Well, good morning. As always, it's a blessing to be here with Divine Grace. And uh, let's just jump right into it. The title of the sermon, I know Mike likes sermons that have titles. Uh, God's promises to the Messiah and to us. And also, yes, I'm recording. Yeah, he, I was asking where part one was, and he said, oh, he forgot to record. We're good. We're good. All right. And then for some of you uh, Bible translation purists, I'm sorry, I'm using the nearly inspired version just because I left my English sanctified version in Team Challenge in my office. So uh, if, if you have to walk out because of that, I understand. All right. So here, let me pray one more time. Lord God, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word with the, your people. God, I pray you'd bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as I was listening to the series that Mike started on 1 Corinthians and the idea of what does it mean of the foolishness of the cross? Why is the cross foolishness? What, what makes it foolish? And there's many directions you can go in that. But where I want to take it this morning, and I'm going to give my point up front and make it a hundred times. The cross is foolish because the promises God makes to protect us are not actually fulfilled in this life. And we have our best example of that in Jesus. So Psalm 91, I chose Psalm 91. You'll see why for a reason. Now, I don't know if you remember at the height of COVID, okay, the prosperity preachers were saying, send $91 in to claim Psalm 91 so you don't get COVID. Now, they weren't actually doing that. I don't think I saw it like that, but that's something they would do, right? Okay. So look, the plague won't come near your house. Just claim this scripture. Look, it says it right there. Believe it. Believe upon it. And it will not come near your house. Okay, so this is a very important. How do we read a psalm like this and apply it to ourselves today? Okay, we read a psalm like this. Are we to take a psalm like this and do what the prosperity preachers tell us to do? Are we to say, look, claim these promises? Because there's a lot of good promises in here. The plague won't come near you. 10,000 will fall at your right hand and it won't even come near you. So this is protection from like being murdered or, or attacked or any kind of physical violence. It won't even come near you, right? Look, it won't even come near you. He will rescue you. You will not have any, pro- you will be in the shelter of God. You won't uh, fear any of these things. Okay, now as Scott was reading that, okay, did you recognize a passage? From the New Testament. Let me read it again. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, so that you will lift your, they will lift you up in their hands, and you will not strike your foot against a stone. So this is also going to be a Mike Milano-style sermon, because we're going to go up to a whole bunch of verses, so get ready to, to flip around. I, I like that. I like that about his sermons. I do. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. If you don't recognize where this verse reoccurs we'll see it it's actually quoted in the gospel of matthew and it's not quoted by jesus it's quoted by satan matthew chapter 4 verses 5 to 7 so this is in the context of jesus being tempted by the devil three times and this is the one verse satan doesn't really quote a verse on the other two temptations this is the temptation he actually quotes a scripture verse and here it is 
Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So now I did some research on this. Scholars don't really know. There's like three possible locations where Jesus could have been taken. But if he was taken to a, a certain point where some scholars think it, was a, it would have been a 450-foot drop. So certain death. You're not going to survive 450 foot, right? I, I mean, I'm sure it's someone somewhere survived a 450 foot drop, but you're probably going to die. So what was Satan tempting Jesus to do? He was tempting him to jump down from the temple and then the angels would catch him and he would just be slowly lowered down in the presence of all the Pharisees and all the religious leaders. And what would they have said? The Messiah is here. He's been brought down from heaven by the holy angels. Jesus, just skip the cross. Okay, that's what he was tempting him to do. He was saying, look, the Psalm 91 promises it. Psalm 91 promises it. Aren't you loyal to God? Aren't you the one? Aren't you the son of God with whom he's well pleased? That was just said at his baptism, right? Isn't that you? Aren't these promises for you? God's certainly not going to let you die falling down from the temple. Okay? So what's, that's what he's tempting him to do. This psalm promises protection from death, right? The, the most basic reading in that psalm is you, you shouldn't die. You shouldn't die of natural causes. You shouldn't die from an illness because God is protecting you. So Jesus, just claim the promises. Just claim the promises, okay? And then Jesus, seeing what Satan is up to, says, you're testing God. Satan, you're testing God and you're trying to get me to test God and we shouldn't test God, okay? What Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is gain glory, authority, and his position at the right hand of God, not through the cross, but through some other means. And this is the temptation. I think the other two temptations to have riches by worshiping Satan and use his power to take care of his basic needs... I don't really think Jesus, I mean, I'm sure he was tempted that way again the rest of his ministry, but I think this is the temptation he was tempted with the entirety of his ministry up until the very end, and we'll see that. But what I want you to see is Jesus teaches us that we are not to take these promises of the Psalms as applying to in this life, but they're to apply to the promise of resurrection. That's the point of the sermon. God's promise to the Messiah is that all his promises of protection are fulfilled in his resurrection, not in his life. In the era of the prosperity preachers, and listen, I am not talking about the guys who get on TV and ask you for money, okay? I'm talking about mainstream, big Eva, it's called, evangelical churches, who have a soft version of the prosperity gospel, which is what? If you are faithful to God, you will live a middle to upper middle class suburban American lifestyle, and God will not take that away from you if you are obedient to him. You should not struggle with finances. You should not struggle with emotional problems. You should not have children that are misbehaving. Everything should go well for you. Claim the promises. That's a more popular version of the prosperity gospel, by the way, than because some of us can just pick on the real obnoxious guys who are telling you to send the money and you plant a seed. But we have a lot of churches 
who are just a straight up prosperity gospel, but it's more you should have financial and emotional prosperity, just in a general sense, because you're an American. And one of the hardest places to be a true Christian, a faithful Christian, is in America. Why? Because we have so much, because we're so prosperous. Okay, now back to this. Matthew 16 is the next one. Turn to Matthew 16. So here's the point I'm making, that this temptation faces Jesus over and over and over and over again from Satan, the same temptation. Cast yourself off the temple, claim the protection of God, claim the promises of God that you will not be harmed because you are the Messiah, you are God's chosen one. Claim the promises of protection. Okay, so if you all know the story, if you don't, this is where Peter confesses Christ as the Messiah. Okay, big turning point in the gospel up to this point. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, inspired by God, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, right? Then right on the heels of that confession, Jesus says to them, from this time, verse 21, Jesus, from this time, from what time? From this time on, what time? The right as soon as they confess him as the Messiah. Now he starts to give them this message. Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Okay, so, yes, I'm the Messiah. You've confessed that. Now I have to go be killed. Now, what's Peter's response to this? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, why does Peter think that? Why does Peter think that if this guy's the Messiah, this, namely his death, will never happen to you? Well, he might have been thinking of Psalm 91. I don't know. And listen, Psalm 91 is the tip of the iceberg. Okay, if you start, once you see what I'm showing you, you'll see it all over the Psalms. All these promises of protection, all these promises of how God's going to deliver his servant from suffering and death and from military conquest and all this stuff. Okay, so maybe it's just a theme in all of the Psalms. And he's like, that won't happen to you. Now, look what Jesus does. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So the motivation, this is interesting, that it's satanic to say that you should claim God's promises as the Messiah and avoid suffering. That's satanic. We don't usually think of that as satanic, do we? Satan's just, he's, he's distributing crack cocaine and heroin and he's, 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 he's with the Democrat party and all this stuff, right? That's Satan. Instead of maybe Satan's voice is, hey, why don't you expect God to take care of your life wonderfully? Why don't you expect God to protect you from all suffering? Oh, that's an interesting satanic voice, isn't it? That we don't think of many times. But Jesus looks right at Peter and says, you rebuking me for me saying you, I'm going to go die on a cross. That's satanic. Get behind me. Okay. Amazing. I think that's incredible. Okay. Next, Matthew 26, okay? I'm just, so the point I'm still, I'm still on this point that this is a temptation for Jesus the whole rest of his ministry. Namely, why don't you claim the promises of God for your protection and not have to go through suffering? So the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm skipping over that kind of, but that's, that's a very 
powerful, potent story about how Jesus is looking toward the suffering he's about to experience and he's accepting it. And he's saying, you know, and I've said this before, this, the, the, the fathers, the church fathers talked about this. Like the, the Garden of Gethsemane is, if you think of human nature as bent inward on itself, like a steel rod because of the fall of Adam and Eve, like it's, it's all about me now. This is the son of God taking upon himself a human nature and bending it back into obedience to God. Not what you, what I will, but what you will. Because remember, the human nature of Jesus wasn't sinful. He didn't have a sin nature, but it wasn't like Adam's either. It was subject to weakness and death. So Jesus assumed a nature that had those abilities to be tempted and weak, and he bent it back to where it was supposed to be as the second Adam. No, not as I will, but as you will, O oh God. So after he's doing that, okay, he gets arrested. Okay, that's what I'm going to look at. Verse 21, or no, no, 20, 52, I'm sorry. So Peter, still acting on behalf of Satan, okay, still, that satanic spirit is still influencing what Peter's doing. Peter, as Jesus is getting arrested, so this is the moment of truth, right? Like this is where it's going down. It's either going to go down right now for Peter. It's either like, this is either where the Messiah, he's going to step up and it's going to go down now because they finally sent the guards. They finally sent the soldiers to come arrest him. This hadn't happened before, right? They, they thought about arresting him, but they, they didn't want to, but they wanted to, but they didn't. But this is finally where it's happening. And Peter's like, all right, this is going down. He pulls his sword. Look what it says. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? Now, did you, did you see the connection to Psalm 91 right there? The mention of angels? You see that? Sometimes we might miss that. He will command his angels concerning you. Same temptation. Jesus doesn't need Peter's sword. He could call upon legions of angels to protect him. How, it, so the, 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 you ever heard of the canonic theory of Christ, that Christ emptied himself of all his divine attributes in order to become incarnate? The problem with that is, it really lessens the glory of what Christ is accomplishing when he's walking this earth because he legitimately has the power to summon angels to his defense and he chooses not to do that, like in real time. Because the canonic theory says he chose to do that like in eternity he chose to lay down his attributes and in real time he kind of, it wasn't in real time. He, he had already decided that before. Here, this is in real time. He's saying, I could right now take care of this situation, guys. But I'm choosing not to. Why? So the scriptures might be fulfilled. Okay? What scriptures? Wait a minute. So there's all these scriptures about the glory and the power and the healing and the protection. Are those the scriptures you're talking about, Jesus? Like, those are the scriptures we're thinking of that you should be protected you are the Messiah. You're David's son. You're the one true king who should reign forever. What is going on? And remember, what they couldn't see that we can see is all these promises were fulfilled where? In the resurrection. 
Okay, you'll, you'll see why I'm making a big deal out of that. All right, Matthew 27. Flip one page, verse 39. Now he's hanging on the cross, still on the same point. Jesus is faced with that same temptation until the end of his ministry. Look at the next. So Matthew 27, 39. Those who pass by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, listen to what they're saying to him. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. So the very fact that he's on a cross being dominated by his enemies are the 10,000 that are arrayed on his left or right being set aside and is he being protected from them? No. Is he, being, is he under the shadow of God's wing being protected from death? No. So these people come and look, look, where's Psalm 91 now? Son of God, you're the son of God. Okay, why aren't you like King David, who basically God allowed him to have military victory? Where, where, you're not, David killed a Goliath with a stone. What, why can't you take care of this situation? Jesus. Okay, many times, because in, we're in our Christianized understanding of things, we go, well, what I see in the cross is just Jesus dying for my sins. And amen. But remember, he's also our example. And the example he's giving us is, the blessing of God is not in delivering you from suffering. Okay, and it's a very clear New Testament message once you see it. But I'm trying to go back to the cross because what the prosperity preachers do is they say, look, Jesus suffered the cross in your place. He died for your sin and he also unleashed some blessings into your life that you should be enjoying. And if you're not, you probably don't have enough faith or there's something inherent in your theology where no, this is actually the path we are to take as well. We are to follow Jesus. Remember he said, take up the cross and follow me. This is what we're supposed to do. Now it continues. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the other elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Notice it's the same temptation. Where's the angels to protect you, Jesus? Why don't you come down from the cross? Why are you suffering? The Messiah is not supposed to suffer. Doesn't Psalm 91 promise that this shouldn't happen to Jesus? Doesn't he trust God? Doesn't he fit all the qualifications of Psalm 91? Remember, I'll turn back there real quick. Isn't, doesn't, isn't this Jesus? Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. So the question is, how are these promises fulfilled for Jesus? Okay, now turn to Luke. 24, because this is the, a fascinating passage, 24, 17, the road to Emmaus. If you're familiar with this story, this is where we get is some insight into a couple disciples 
Because we really, it's interesting. We really don't have a lot of information in the Gospels as to what the disciples were actually discussing between the death of Christ and his resurrection, right? We have all kinds of stuff after he rose, right? That there was discussion going on. Like they're hiding and stuff. Oh, somebody. Somebody needs to mute their Zoom. <laughs> anyway, that's fine. So, they, what are they saying is their interpretation, the disciples, of what happened to Jesus? Luke 24. Where are we at? Um, he asked, so Jesus comes. They don't recognize he's Jesus, and he comes and talks to them. He asked them, Jesus, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. So listen, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So what's their, what's their interpretation of the crucifixion and death of Jesus of Nazareth? He can't be the Messiah. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And also, they're still, I think, misunderstanding the task of the Messiah as well. He didn't come to redeem Israel if what they mean by that is give them political victory and reestablish an earthly throne and have a Davidic king you know, like the Maccabees or something like that, which would have been their more recent history. Like, are we going to have some mighty warrior come in and rescue us from our oppressors? So they probably still had that in mind too. I don't think they're think when they say redeem Israel, they didn't mean usher in the forgiveness of sins. Okay. So what is more, it's the third day since this all took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels. Oh, there they come again. Who said he was alive? Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did, him they did not see. So the, they, they haven't yet made the connection between, okay, the Messiah is supposed to come and deliver us and redeem us. But it couldn't have been this guy because he died. But then the women are saying, wait a minute, he's not in the tomb anymore. They're not seeing the connection. What's the connection? The connection is all these promises they were expecting God to do in this promised Messiah are found where? In the resurrection. The resurrection is where all the promises, and let me just start applying this now. When you read Psalm 91, it is for you in your resurrection. You can claim all those promises in that God will protect you by what? Raising you from the dead in the last day. That's how he will protect you. You could be slain, murdered, shot in the head, walking out of a binding grave. There seems to be a lot of shootings in Pittsburgh, so I guess it's possible to happen. You could get shot right now, and that promise is for you. Why? Because that body you got, died in will be raised by Christ. Okay? It's not biblical Christianity to say, no, if you're trusting God, he wouldn't let you get shot. He would protect you. Okay, well, if that's the case, why didn't you do it for Jesus? And the only way to get around that is, well, no, that Jesus had a unique thing. We're, we're, not, we're not to follow in his footsteps. Like, he earned all that stuff for us. We're just supposed to enjoy the blessings now. Well, no, and I'll show you in a minute why that's not biblical. Okay, and then what does Jesus say to them? 
I'm still in Luke 24. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then, I'd love to be in this Bible study. Our Bible studies are boring. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus then takes them through the scriptures and he exposes to them what teaching? What's he showing them in the Bible? Is this just some random Bible? study? No, the Bible study is, guys, the Messiah had to suffer and then enter into his glory. And the glory is what they're thinking, right? The glory of like the Messiah should have came and done this. The glory is that he is resurrected from the dead and his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. At least right now it's not. Now. How do the, how do the apostles, so Acts 5, what's the next one? Acts 5 verse 41. So I skipped a lot of stuff that we could say. But my question now is, okay, as the apostles finally figured this out, right? That the Messiah had to suffer and then his resurrection is where the promises of the kingdom of God and the promises of God are actually fulfilled. How did this affect how they did ministry, right? So Acts 5.41. Now, this, this verse always convicts me as a spoiled, rotten, wealthy and I'm wealthy. We're wealthy. You hit the lottery being, if you were born in America, you hit the lottery. You always see mega millions. Like, oh, go. Like, if you were born in America, you hit, your odds are same as mega millions, man. If you run the odds of a child being born in America versus the rest of the world. The most wealthy country ever, okay? And this, this, this convicts me. Would I do what the apostles are doing right here? So this is the second time the apostles are called before the Sanhedrin and they're told, you better stop preaching Christ. Okay, and they did they flog him that time? I think they might they might have whipped him a little bit that time. Gave, gave him a little. You know, so, okay. so what if you got pulled into some police substation and whipped for being a Christian? Okay, and they released you. Would this be your attitude? The apostles left the Sanhedrin. Oh yeah, it does say that. Verse forty. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And, you know, flogging wasn't like, flogging probably wasn't good. The apostles left Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Wow. Would I rejoice, like, like happy? Like, what makes you happy? It's not going to make you happy to watch Tom Brady totally destroy the Steelers today, right? I'm sure it's not. Okay. I'm a Browns fan, so give me, give me a break on that. <laughs> but... Okay, it's, as a Browns fan, it's good to see the Steelers doing bad. Just, just want to say. Now, but rejoicing, okay? I'm, I'm happy. I'm, this is like awesome. Like this is pure awesomeness. I just got my back ripped open by some whips for Christ. Not, where's that, where's that Edgar Snyder and Associates? What's the number again? I'm suing. Police brutality. <laughs> like, 
That's what we would do as Americans. We would, we would make a big case out of it, and then we would get a Republican politician to stand next to us and be like, see, this is what, we, this is what we've been saying. If you elect these Democrats, see, see, this is what we've been saying is going to happen. Here's what we would do. Instead of saying, look, praise the Lord, I am participating in the sufferings of Christ. And we're going to see that Paul does that. How much? What did you say? Yeah. Hour and a half, you said? Okay, cool. All right. Okay. <laughs> Acts 14, 22. All right, so I'm just making the point here with these scriptures that these apostles, okay, they, 14, 22. 14, 22. And this is interesting because this is like one of these throwaway lines that Luke puts in there. Like, and if you read through Acts, like sometimes he'll just, like, he'll be telling a story. Uh, oh yeah, they said this. They, they, like, they mentioned this, Right? It's, it, he sa- it says, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. Quote, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's all. So hey, when, as they went around, they said, hey guys, look, you want to enter the kingdom of God, you got to go through many hardships. Many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why did they believe that? Because they saw that that's what Jesus did. Jesus entered the kingdom, right? He stood on the mountain, Matthew 28, and said, all authority on heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples because I've entered the kingdom. I am the king. And how did he enter that kingdom? Through suffering, not through God protecting him in this life on this earth. Acts 20, 22. So the apostle Paul Okay, he was so wanting to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth that he knew the Holy Spirit was telling him there's going to be suffering. Let's read, the, let's read it first. 22. And now, this is Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, okay? And actually, this, this verse is very meaningful to me because 22 years ago, 21 years ago now, I went through the Teen Challenge program. Because I was pretty addicted to drugs and alcohol and had to go off to rehab for a year. That's how bad it was. But that you pick a scripture for your graduation verse, basically, and they put it in this bulletin. And Acts 20, 24 is the one I picked. And little did I know how prophetic it would be in my life. But anyway, 22, this is Paul speaking. And now compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit wants me, warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. You know, I wonder if God called me to go to Iran and preach the gospel, and I knew for a fact but what happens if you go as an American and try to preach the gospel in Iran? Either get killed or because you're American, they might throw you in jail and use you as a bargaining chip like the Russians do, right? They'll, they'll put you in there and then they'll call the State Department and say, hey, we got, we got one of your white American Christians. Uh, you want them back? Give us some of our guys out of Gitmo or whatever. But you, it's, a certain, it's a certain jail sentence. I wonder. I wonder what I would do. I don't know what I would do. I, I'll be honest with you. But I know that that's what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to not live this, oh no, God promises you safety and blessing and security in this life. Just trust him. 
you know, Amer- the American dream and Christianity. Oh, that's like hand in glove. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. This is the city set on a hill. This is all the founding fathers were Christians where they wanted this. This is what they wanted. That's, that's what we've bought as Christians. And then the Republican Party came right along and said, we will hijack that for our purposes, won't we? Romans 5. Romans 5. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's just got done in the first four chapters of Romans, right? Expositing the gospel, the glorious gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our only hope is Christ and his righteousness, and we have no righteousness. If we're judged by God's law, we're condemned because it, it requires perfection, all this stuff, which I assume you're all, you all know at this church, that it's all Christ and Christ alone and only his righteousness, right? After he exposes that glorious truth, then what does he shift to? Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yes. Amazing. Next verse. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. So wait a minute. We're supposed to rejoice in being justified by faith. We're supposed to rejoice that we have peace with God. Right? We... we, the God who was our enemy and our judge who should have judged us and condemned us, which we well deserve, is now at peace with us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what his son has done in our place, living the perfect life in our place and suffering the wrath we deserve. That gives us peace with God. But now that same rejoicing we have in the gospel, we should have in our suffering. You know, wouldn't it be weird to say Hey, how's so-and-so doing? So-and-so's in the hospital. How, how are you doing with that? I'm rejoicing. Like, that would be weird. I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing in sickness and suffering. I, I, I'm, I'm finding God to be nearer to me than he ever has been because I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ. And this is pointing me toward the resurrection. This is reminding me that the physical body that I'm in or my loved one is in is cursed by sin, but Christ has promised to raise it on the last day. And this is making me press more into that promise. Okay, but many times we, we, we don't view it that way. We, oh, this suffering is bad. It's, it's, it's not gaining me any good, but the Bible says it does gain you good. What, is it, what does it produce? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. So why are many people hopeless? Why is there so much depression, even amongst Christians? Because they're not taught that you're not supposed to expect happiness in this life. That's why you're depressed. Okay? Things aren't going well for you. Things aren't working the way you wanted. That job didn't come through. This happened to you. That happened to you. Okay? And then, you know, social media is just destroying young people. Because all it is, I I mean, you know, I'm older now. I'm 40. Okay? You're going to say you're a pop. Okay? But when I went through school, okay, the only time that you had all the other kids and how awesome they were and cool they were put in front of your face was when? When you actually were at school. That's the only time, right? Then you went home and your parents could like, hey man, you know, it's okay. You know, the, you know, here's our home. It's our shelter for you. You know what I mean? Where we don't put these expectations on you to be super cool and hip and trendy and stuff like that. But now it comes right into your house on this stinking device 24-7. You know, at every moment, I don't measure up to how that girl looks. 
I'm not as cool as that guy. It's just, it's just constant. What's our Christian response to that? This will all pass away. Okay. And then, but then what's sad is all the most popular Christian pastors, what are they supposed to be? Influencers. Now, thank the Lord that he has brought some judgment on some of these guys. Like the Hillsong guy, um, Carl Lentz. Okay, watch the Joe Rogan podcast where he talks about Carl Lentz. It's got some explicit, it's, got, it's explicit, okay. But it's hilarious to watch Joe Rogan go, what? That's not a Christian. What, he's showing off? <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta watch it. Like, look at how he's dressing. That's not a Christian. What do you mean that's a Christian? It's all about influencing everybody. What about the pastor who suffers being the man of God? The pastor who struggles, the pastor who is putting one day in front of another, and the pastor who is being faithful to preach the gospel, which is becoming more and more offensive, and that's the man I want to follow, not the flashiness. Okay, that's what Jesus is teaching us. Okay, I've dwelt way too long on this. Okay, Romans 8. Romans 8. Just got a couple more passages. Same deal. But my point I'm making here is Christ's suffering and that is what he was destined to do when he walked this planet and then the glory, the promises, the power of God being manifest was for the end, the resurrection. They saw that with Jesus and now they're living it out themselves. And that's what they taught people. Romans 8 Verse 17, okay? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Oh, that's a great message, right? We have an inheritance in heaven, yes! We're gonna be multi-billionaires. All the gold, silver, and jewels, that, that, that all belong to God. Talk about prosperity gospel. If, there's a big if there. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So inheritance and being promised an inheritance, Paul throws that right in there and says, well, wait a minute. Um, Remember Jesus? If there was anyone that should have inherited the earth, who should it have been? Jesus of Nazareth. The only man who's walked this planet and loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment, every day, loved his neighbors himself, totally devoted to the Father's will. If there's any person who should have been given the prosperity gospel at that moment, it should have been him. Here you go. It's all yours. You are the perfectly obedient son. He had the inheritance, right? Guess what? That's not how he got it. He got the inheritance through suffering. And that's what Paul is saying we're called to, to suffer. I consider our present sufferings, verse 18, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation, okay, so I don't have time to go into all this, but please check out that link that Steve, was it the Desiring God one of that song? And then they work in a John Piper sermon that's like just like a 30 second clip and it's powerful, man. I got to figure out what sermon that's from. But it's a powerful sermon. It's probably to be on Romans 8. But it's a powerful clip where, where Piper's talking about the suffering that we endure is nothing compared to the glory that we will be revealed and what the suffering's doing to us for eternity. All right, 2 Corinthians 
is the next one. And 2 Corinthians is an amazing passage where Paul, 2 Corinthians 1 9. Okay, 1 9. So 2 Corinthians is really an awesome book when you see the theme that runs through it is Paul is dealing with who he calls the super apostles, and they literally are the prosperity preachers of Paul's day. And after Paul plants a church and moves on, these guys come in and they're like, hey, look, man, see that chariot I just, see, see that horse? That's a, that's a well-bred horse I just rode in on. Like that's, that's like the Mercedes of horses. See? And see this, this see that? That's, that's, I don't know what brand these are, I don't, but that's, that's Gucci, Versace. That, that's, these are the guys. And, that, and that's how we know we're blessed. And that's how you need to know we're blessed because we don't suffer. We enjoy the blessing of God. And almost all of 2 Corinthians, it's like 1 Corinthians. He ping-pongs to different topics. But one of the themes through 2 Corinthians is, how do you know that I am the true apostle and these ones are fake? It's because I suffer. That's how you know. Okay? And he boasts in his sufferings even, he says. Now, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Indeed, in our, he's talking about some stuff they went through in the province of Asia. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So notice, just, that's the only verse I'm going to read from that. The suffering they underwent that made them feel like they had the sentence of death was to push them to do what? Say, God, please deliver me from this? No. God, you raise the dead. So even if I die, I know you will raise me. From the dead. 2 Corinthians 4. The treasures in jars of clay, right? 4 7. 2 Corinthians 4 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that in that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So notice, for Paul, the, the core of the, the apostle and their company and their evangelizing and planning churches and pastoring people, they, this is like a core tenet of their pastoral care, right? We are suffering And that is good for you when you see us suffer because it reminds you of Christ. It's not good for you to walk, have us walking around being all glorious and and protected from suffering, which is what these celebrity pastors are. You can't even approach them. They have bodyguards. I mean, Mike went over that in one of his sermons, you know, they're not suffering. Right? They are the prototypical, successful, cultural American man. Okay? Who is dressed well, has a hot wife, and it's a big church. And everything is going well. And then the people go, well, that's what God has in store for me. But what's the dirty little secret of the mega church? The back door is as big as the front door. Oh, yeah, they, they're real good at getting people in. But what happens when they go through a tragedy in one of those churches? What happens when someone gets cancer? What happens when someone goes through a hard time? Okay? Well, what, what, what do you, maybe, to be fair, maybe other than Sunday morning, they have some ministries and some pastors who will help you through suffering. 
I'm sure they do. Churches that size. But you're certainly not getting anything on Sunday morning to help you through that. You're certainly not getting a message of suffering is from God and it's going to conform you to the image of Christ so you can look toward the resurrection. No, suffering is, is abnormal in that context. It's not supposed to happen to Christians. Okay? So that's the problem with these churches. First, 2 Corinthians 11. In this whole chapter, I'm skipping a lot, but what I just said earlier, this is Paul and the false apostles who come in and try to take over Paul's ministry. Like This is what would happen to Paul if he planted a church today. He would plant a church, get it going, and then a prosperity preacher would come along and try to hijack it. Say, yeah, yeah, it's good. You, you got a building, you got some people. Yeah, that's good. Okay, let's, let's take this to the next level. God wants to bless you. Okay. 11.21. Okay, so Paul... So these, these false apostles are boasting, right? They're boasting about all their glory and their, their great oratory and they, they, they're, they're from a wealthy background and they have all their, their you know, their, all this. So what Paul does, what anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Okay, so these are some of the things that these false apostles apparently say. Look, look, I'm a, I'm a full-blooded Jew. I'm Jewish. I'm from the bloodline, Okay. So yeah, you know, my, I'm the, my, my great-grandfather was a pastor, and so am I. You know, okay. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Okay, so here's Paul's boasting. He's about to boast, man. He's about to give his pedigree. This is Paul's PhD, right? I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Okay, let me pause. I'm convinced that if you met the Apostle Paul at this time, he would be the most disfigured man you'd ever met, even on his face. Like, it's not like he could have covered his disfigurement with clothes. Like, I think his face was scarred up. I think he probably had patches of hair that wouldn't regrow. His hands, and like, he couldn't cover it. Like, he was very disfigured. So, this is the thing. The, the, the super apostles walk in church. They're looking good. This guy comes walking in, and he can, he's like this, and he, like his face is all scarred. And he's like, oh, that's the apostle Paul. He's the one who met Christ on the road to Damascus and was commissioned directly by Christ. Yeah, that's him. That's him. And, of course, the arm of the flesh, the eyes of the flesh, the worldly... Well, that can't be... That can't be a truth. That can't be the Apostle Paul. Wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the Apostle Paul? No, 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 no. We, we don't want that. We don't want to be ministered to by that guy. He doesn't have victory. Where's his victory? Okay, where's his Psalm 91? Psalm 91 isn't applying to him. I have been constantly on the move. Wait, wait. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own countrymen, danger from Gentiles, and danger. He goes on and on and on. Okay? And I like the last part. Uh, verse 32. In Damascus, the governor under King Aris had the city of Damascus and guards under arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in a wall and slipped through their hands. <laughs> so, yeah, man, in this one time... Like, they almost got me, but they had to lower me in the basket. Like, look, man, you know what being a true apostle is? You're being hunted down. These false apostles, these false uh, leaders, they don't even have that issue because for whatever reason, they're, they're uh, protected from that. Probably by Satan, right? Because they're believing the promise of Satan. Just 
just just claim the promises of God and just just you know get put God to the test and it'll work. I'll make sure you're protected. I mean, isn't that the seductive thing of the prosperity gospel? It works sometimes. Like you'll get testimonies. Like the prosperity gospel preachers depend on testimonies. Yeah, you know, I I I started coming to this church and you know, God answered my prayer and I got a job. God answered my prayer and I was healed. God answered my prayer and my wayward son came back. And everyone goes, oh, this is real Christianity. You asked God and he answered your prayer and he protected you. That's not real Christianity. Okay? If God wants to do that, that's great. If he doesn't do it, that can be his will as well. Okay? Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you. Calvinists love this verse. They love, oh, you Arminian. I'll show you that faith is a gift. Let's do this. Philippians 1.29. See, I'll exegete it for you right now. (laughs) Give you a black eye, you Arminian. But look what it says. For it has been, so because Paul's actually not talking about faith. That's not his main topic in Philippians 1.29. It's it's the whole top. Philippians is another epistle of suffering and what suffering means, right? For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So it is true. That's a powerful faith is a gift passage. God grants us the ability to believe, right? But he also grants us what? In equal measure. To suffer for him. Okay? I'm almost done. Oh, wow. I'm at 49 minutes. I, I need to be done. Mike's about to drag me off the stage here. Philippians 3, 7. Well, I'm going to end with this one. I also have 1 Peter 4. We don't have time to do that one. But Philippians 3. I'll take us home with 3, 7 to 11. Because I love this passage because Paul combines the glory of the gospel with sufferings, like in a very superb way right here. But for what, but what, so Paul goes on his pedigree again, right? He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisee, boom, boom. But when he looks back at that, he says what? Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So Paul, once again, rejoicing in my only righteousness is in Christ. My righteousness, my right standing with God, my ability to stand before the holy, righteous God and not be destroyed by his judgment and by his holiness is because I am covered in, clothed in, shielded by another righteousness. The second Adam has obeyed in my place. I have the covenant head and I am in union with that covenant head, Jesus And my union with him gives me a perfect, righteous standing. Glorious. And then, what does Paul then say? Okay, because I have this righteousness, this glorious gospel, right? Verse 10. What what does he do then? Did he just sit there and meditate on the gospel? Oh, I'm just meditating on the gospel. It's so wonderful. No, next thing. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection... And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
So the gospel motivates Paul to want to know Christ in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So just take that seriously. For the apostle Paul, the, so we see both things here that many times are pulled apart, right? We have the objective work of Christ, not repeatable by any of us, only done by him, burdened by him on his shoulders, giving us that perfect righteousness. He's our substitute, right? But then we have Christ, our example, both in that paragraph. Because then Paul looks to Christ and says, yes, he's given me this righteousness, but what do I do now? I want to become like him in his death. I want to participate and share. Koinonia, I believe, is the Greek word there. Very, you know, the, the, the fellowship, sharing with him in his sufferings. Okay, so let me circle back. Can we claim all the promises that the prosperity preachers say we should claim? Yes. Don't give them the high ground. No, no, no. We're supposed to just eat out of garbage cans. That's how you know you're a true Christian. No. <laughs> okay. We, we, we can claim the promises. But the question is, when are the promises fulfilled? I mean, you know how powerful it is for someone to be reminded, listen, your body's failing you. You're suffering. Okay. If things are going bad, but you know what the hope is? Look at Christ. He suffered horribly, but God gave him protection in the resurrection. You think Christ had any enemies after the resurrection that could threaten him? Any plague can touch Christ now? Any disease? Is he under the protection of God the Father? Now, yes. Why? Because of his resurrection. The resurrection is where the promise is. So I, I, I challenge you to read the Psalms in a fresh way. Because all the Psalms are about Christ, by the way. I, I, I meant to say that at the beginning. All 150 Psalms are about Christ. When Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, that's Jesus, primarily. Jesus is the blessed man. And then we are united to him, the blessed man. And then, of course, there's a secondary application. We should seek to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He is the one who has obeyed God's law and not walked in the counsel of the wicked. And we're united to him. All 150 Psalms are about him. All of them are about him. And once you start seeing that lens and you go, wow, the psalmist is the promises of God's protection are all applied to Christ where? In his resurrection. As I showed you in the scriptures, that's what we're supposed to pursue. Being united to Christ in his sufferings and death and looking forward to our own resurrection through him. That's the prosperity gospel we bring. That the ultimate redemption of our body is in the end. The ultimate promises of God are in the end. And if in this life God chooses to give us a life of suffering and sorrow and grief, we accept it. We rejoice in it even, Paul says, because we're participating in a small way in the suffering of Christ. And it points us to our heavenly reward. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this time and for these precious people, God. And Lord, um, I know it's a pastime of many people to talk about how there's all this suffering and persecution coming and we should, we should get ready for it and all this, God. But I, I just honestly ask you to help us even in the little things in our life that cause us suffering. Would you redirect those things in the way that we've heard in this sermon today? God, even in the things that cause us pain, anxiety, depression, grief, 
Would you redirect them into suffering for Christ? Now, God, we know if this suffering is caused by our own folly, we need to repent. So those of us who need to repent of self-inflicted folly because of our sin, please show us those sins and help us to walk in repentance. But for those sufferings we are going through that are either because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a cursed world, or because of our witness for you, would you turn those sufferings into glory for us? Would you turn those sufferings into things that we rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for the name, that we can be like the Apostle Paul and rejoice in our sufferings and look forward to them and and ask you to, to sanctify them to us? And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.